0: 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're continuing what we began last week in dealing with immorality within the church. And in the first part of this message, Paul identifies this problem within the church, the church at Corinth. And there were two main points that we looked at in dealing with immorality in these first five verses. The first one is that they needed to deal with the sin of immorality. And this they would do this through the discipline. They would understand the need that they had for dealing with immorality through the discipline that would come through the Apostle Paul. Verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And so the sin of incest was common knowledge within the church at Corinth, and no one was doing anything about it. It was a kind of sin that was not even acceptable amongst the pagans "...in which inhabited the city of Corinth." Paul goes on to say in 2a, "...you have become arrogant and have not mourned." They have not mourned over this egregious sin in their midst. Instead, they have become arrogant about it. They were puffed up as a result of it taking place in their church... And it seems based upon the word choice that Paul uses, they were in some way proud that this was taking place in their church. So the method of dealing with immorality in the church was expulsion from the church. Latter part of verse two says, so that one, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So expulsion from the church was a serious response to a very serious sin. And even though Paul was not physically present with them, he indicates that he is with them spiritually because God inhabits all believers. And through that mutual inhabitation, Paul was with them in spirit and he had already rendered his decision about what needed to be done with this immoral man. Verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I... Were present, so Paul emphasizes that he didn't need to be there to hear the conversation or to consider the facts. He knew what was taking place; it had, it was common knowledge. It was reported back to him, and he says very, very seriously, "This has to be dealt with." Paul knew this sin was serious. And it needed to be dealt with swiftly and he asserts his authority to do so. Now if you remember from previous messages, he is the apostle who had founded this church, who had converted many of the members of this church and was considered their spiritual father. And so in the absence of any leadership, he was going to provide what they lacked and he had already rendered his decision. In the name of Christ, consistent with Jesus' character and his teaching, And with the power that Christ had delegated to him as an apostle, he had already made up his decision. Verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's decision to expel this man from the church was a severe response to a very egregious sin. And the hope was that by being excluded from the Christian community, this man would repent of his sin and as is noted in verse 5, be saved so that, quote, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we've talked about discipline. We've talked about the reasons why Paul went fast-forwarded through the process of discipline and moved immediately into expulsion. And now we continue with the second part of this in verses 6 through 13. And here's what God's Word says as a conclusion of dealing with immorality. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually... I I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So number three on our outline as we continue to work through this passage of Scripture is understanding the reason for dealing with immorality. This begins in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So the boasting that Paul is referencing here is the arrogance that has already been mentioned in verse 2. This church, rather than being mournful or embarrassed by the sin of incest in their congregation, were for some reason proud of it and boastful of it and were talking openly about it and they were not bothered by it at all. What would you think if you knew that somebody in your church was practicing such an egregious sin or was living in adultery and perhaps was even bringing the partner of adultery to the church with them? Would you not look and expect somebody to do something about this? Or would you just sit by and say, well, good for them. I guess God has spoken to them and given peace to them and has revealed something to them that gives them the prerogative to live their lives this way. Where would you choose? What side of this issue would you sit on? Well, the church in Corinth wasn't bothered by it at all. What they did not understand was the reason that they needed to deal with this immorality and why Paul was so insistent upon the expulsion of this sinful man from the church. The principle is this, tolerated sin affects all. Now, that might be a little bit of a generous application of the principle, but I can guarantee you this. If we were a church of two or three hundred people, and we knew that there were people who were guilty of sexual immorality within our congregation, and nobody did anything about it, and people seemingly approved of it, do you not think that there would be people in that church who would say, hmm, that's kind of interesting, I wasn't aware that I was able to do that because these people that I know and trust and respect are living their lives this way. I want to explore this a little bit more because after all, doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't God giving me everything that I want and need in my life? Is God not going to withhold any good thing from me? I can guarantee you That there are people who would think that way. I remember when I was a young Christian, and there were people that I knew and respected and trusted, and I would see the movies that they watched, or the music that they listened to, or hear the jokes that they would tell, and it caused me to go, huh, I wonder why they feel okay in doing those things, or in saying those things. It caused me to question them and me. Am I, am I too committed? Am, am I a religious zealot? Am I an extremist? Or is there something more to Christianity that than I'm aware of? So this issue is Christian liberty, and Paul will deal with that extensively later in the book. But what is tolerated within the church is eventually going to affect everyone. Now, he uses this analogy of leaven. And Brett, let me back up and say this. If you were to know of sexual immorality being practiced within within the church and the leadership said, well, you know, it's not really that big of a deal, it would affect you. You would either say, well, that sounds like something I want to learn more about. Or you would say, I want nothing to do with this. I am going to leave. I'm out of here. This is not right. You would be affected by it although you may not necessarily be a willing participant in it. Let me move on. So the analogy of leaven and bread. So in ancient times, we're not very familiar with this, but in ancient times when bread was about to be baked, they would pull a small lump of that dough aside And then they would bake their bread. They would take that lump of dough and they would put it in water and they would allow it to ferment. And the next time that they made a batch of dough for bread, they would add that fermented lump to it and mush it all in there. And over a period of several days, that little lump of leavened dough would then leaven the entirety of that fresh batch of dough. Have you ever had Amish bread or friendship bread? And you make that stuff, it is so good, you'll gain weight every day you eat that, I promise you. It is the best best bread you will ever have. But when you make Amish friendship bread, you put aside a small portion of that. And when you mix all the other inert ingredients, you add that piece that you set aside to that new batch. And after a few days, it's all bubbly and fermented. And the yeast has done what it's going to do. And then it's time to bake the bread. And you pull out another lump before you do that. And that's the process that goes on and on and on. So the principle is that a little leaven or a little yeast would then ferment and would then affect this fresh batch of dough, enabling it to rise and be light and fluffy and warm and chewy and delicious and ready for some butter or for some jelly or for whatever you like to put on your bread. So leaven or yeast in the Bible... And the reason that Paul uses this analogy is that leaven or yeast in the Bible is almost always associated as a way to describe sin. Not always, but usually. Matthew sixteen six, Jesus said, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was the influence of the legalism and the traditionalism and the hypocrisy of the spiritual leaders of the people that was going to influence and affect the rest of Judaism. The principle is a little leaven in the dough is enough to affect and influence the entire loaf of bread. So in other words, when sin is tolerated in the church, it will spread and it will affect the rest of the church. Sometimes very negatively sometimes very positively if people are going to stand up and they're going to say, this is not right, we have to deal with this. We cannot tolerate this. And oh, by the way, within many of the denominations within our country, within Christianity, there is always a challenge to purity and doctrinal inerrancy and it creates a split, a negative and a positive result. So in this sense, the leaven... This toleration of sin is going to affect affect the entirety of the church. And Paul says, this cannot happen. This will be ruinous to the church. This man has to be disciplined and expelled from the church. Sometimes discipline must be severe because the consequence of not disciplining is much, much worse. You may spank your child for their willful disobedience. And I can't remember many times where that wasn't a difficult and an unpleasant experience. Now, there are some times where you get so mad that you just can't wait to spank the kid because you're so angry at them. But many, many, many times as my, as my son was crying on my shoulder and he knew that the spanking was coming, it was unpleasant and unpleasant. And it was difficult to me as the one who was going to apply the discipline, but it was necessary because the problem is when there is no discipline, what was in the beginning willful disobedience can become willful rebellion and defiance. Tony's a school teacher in the middle school at Kennett, and I'll ask Tony this, and I know the answer before I ask it. Tony, do you know any undisciplined kids who are willfully defiant and rebellious to authority? He's being very, very generous by saying a couple. My wife works at the YMCA childcare system. Marcy, are there any willfully re- rebellious and defiant children in your building? All day, every day, everywhere you go. They're like cockroaches running around everywhere. And that's the problem. When there is no discipline, the problems will get worse. Sin is a spiritual malignancy and it will not stay isolated for very long. Now, there are going to be people who hear those words and say, Yeah, I don't know about that. Be careful. Except by the grace of God, what? There you go. We need to recognize that sin, whether we're willing to tolerate it or not, is very serious and it has to be dealt with. Oh, by the way, Jesus didn't die on the cross for just the sin of immorality. Jesus died for the sin problem that infects every aspect of our being so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin and separated from it so that we could live a life of holiness and righteousness Through him. So unless this sin is removed from the church, it will spread like an infection until the whole fellowship of believers is diseased. Now, God diagnoses spiritual health only by the standards of his righteousness, not ours, only by his righteousness. We can be highly gifted, highly blessed, highly successful and highly respected and also be highly sinful. Do you believe that? If you go, eh, I'm not so sure about that, man, look out because Satan is on the doorstep ready to take you down a place you may never think you would have gone. Sin is a problem and it has to be dealt with severely severely. And swiftly, and this was the problem of the Corinthian church. Highly gifted, highly blessed, highly successful, highly respected. They had a rich heritage. From the apostle Paul and from the apostle Peter and from Apollos. And this is what Paul lines out for us in the very first chapter of this letter to the church of Corinth and verses five through seven that in everything, in everything you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And here they are, some three, four, five years later, approving of and allowing the sin of incest in their church. They have wandered far, far away from the rich spiritual heritage that they were given, and they are now immersed in sin. They are a sanctified people by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, and they are to rid themselves of this corrupting influence of sin. And this is why Paul says in verse 7a, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So you see here that Paul calls them the unleavened, indicating that they are the sanctified, that they have not been eternally influenced by the unleaven of sin, yet they need to clean out the old leaven that is there that word clean out or that phrase means to purge or to cleanse thoroughly now what does it mean to purge what does it mean to cleanse thoroughly it means to remove every single remnant of whatever that thing is that you are purging To clean thoroughly means to remove every trace so that it is now completely clean and without any spot or blemish or defect. So by removing the sinful man from their midst, they are removing the influence of sin among them so they can be who they truly are, a sanctified people communicated here as a new lump now, that may not sound very flattering, but you and I, we as a church, are a new lump. That's good. It means we've been removed from the influence of sin, but we must not allow the influence of sin to continue to influence and affect the reality that we are a new lump. Now, the reference here of Christ being our Passover is of course a reference to the sacrifice that He made for us. It is rooted in the Jewish history of the Passover lamb and the sacrifice of the perfect lamb and the blood of that lamb being spread over the doorposts of the homes of the Israelite people and the death angel coming into their encampment and passing over them. So there obviously was some Jewish heritage that was known here which is part of the reason why Paul says, do you not know? And it's also indicative of the fact that there were likely Jewish believers amongst them. And so it is a remembrance, a reminder, a reminder that Jesus paid the price of our sin and he has separated us from sin's consequences, which is death and its power which is bondage or a life that is controlled by sinful attitudes and by sinful actions. So it is a call to our being willing to appropriate this victory that Christ provided for us through His death on the cross, and we appropriate that victory by living for Him and by trying to please Him in every single way. I saw when Trevor came in this morning that he had a little bracelet somewhat hidden by his jacket, but I saw enough of that bracelet to know that it says WWJD. Trevor, what does that mean? What would Jesus do? Right? What would Jesus do? So if the church is infiltrated by sexual immorality... It's a great first question to ask. What would Jesus do? So how do we find out what Jesus would do? We would go to the Word. We would find out what Jesus said. Do you think Jesus tolerated sexual immorality? Uh-uh. He confronted it. And when it was repented of, He forgave it and cleansed people from it, go back and look at the uh, the encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was now with a man who was not her husband. Jesus never glossed over the sin of people, he confronted it, and in grace he forgave it. This is what the church does. We are to confront this sin, and when it is repented of, we through the grace of God, are to forgive and cleanse of it. This is what Jesus meant when he spoke to the disciples and said, what you have bound in, what you have, excuse me, what, I don't have a reference. What you bind on earth has been bound in heaven and with what you loose, on earth has been loosed in heaven, meaning that they were going to be the agents of confrontation over sin and forgiveness of sin through the inspiration of the Spirit and the ministries that they are going to have. So we appropriate the victory that Christ has given to us in our lives by living in such a way that we ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then we respond accordingly. Paul references this, In the book that he wrote to Titus, Second Titus, excuse me, Titus two verses eleven to fourteen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, let me ask you the question: Does sexual immorality? fit with that description. No, not in any way, shape, or form. He goes on to say, verses 13-14, to looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. So we live our lives with the commitment to live it sensibly Righteously and purity as we await His coming being reminded of the sacrifice that He has made for our salvation. If we are committed to living our lives this way, we will not be willing to tolerate sin like what's going on in Corinth in the church, and we will not be willing to tolerate sin in our own personal private lives that no one else may ever see or ever even know of. Now, this leads us to Paul's conclusion as expressed here, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, feast of Passover, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity And truth. Now we know that the Jews celebrated the Passover feast once a year, but Christians are to celebrate it continuously. Why? Because the reality of Christ's provision for us on the cross, setting us free from the consequence and the power of sin, is to motivate us to live for Him as we celebrate the victory that God has already given to us. So Paul says that we are to celebrate the feast of this victory. Not with leaven or filled with sinful attitudes and actions. Expressed here as malice and wickedness. But how? With sincerity and truth. These words are used synonymously with purity. So sincerity is the idea of a genuine or a pure commitment. So we celebrate the victory that is ours in Christ with a genuine and a pure commitment. Truth identifies the object of this sincere commitment and that is expressed towards the character of Christ and the teachings of Christ which is the truth of Christ. So when we hear truth, we think about the truth of God's Word. When we hear about the truth of Christ, we think about His character and His teachings. So it could be rephrased this way When we are genuinely committed to Christ and His truth, we will celebrate the victory that He has given to us and our celebration will be reflected in the lives that we live, not just in the words that we speak. So this is what Paul wants to communicate to the church at Corinth is the reason that they need to deal with this immorality. It is going to influence and affect everyone. It is inconsistent with who they are and with the victory that Christ has provided for them. Now, the, first, the fourth point in our outline is understanding the context of dealing with immorality. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the moral people. So, again, this is a reference back to the very first letter that Paul wrote that we do not have a copy of. And in that letter, Paul dealt for the very first time with the problem of sexual immorality. And it was in that first letter that we do not have a copy of that Paul says that we are to disassociate ourselves from the sinful people. Now, since Paul has already dealt with immorality in that first letter and they have either misunderstood it or they have ignored it, he clarifies exactly what it means. Now, that word to associate means to mix up together. And it infers the idea of keeping close contact with or intimate company with sinful people. Now, the opposite of associate would be to disassociate or to separate from Sinful people. Now the same phrase is used in Second Thessalonians and the clarity that Paul intends is very obvious here. And he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So the question is this, to whom is Paul writing this letter called second Thessalonians he's writing it to the church in Thessalonica who did paul write the first letter of Corinth 2 the first letter of Corinthians 2 that we don't have a copy of it was to the church in Corinth so paul is talking to the church in Thessalonica just as just as he is talking to the church in Corinth just as he is talking to the church in Kennet Square or Unionville Grace Fellowship Church and he clarifies the teaching of disassociation do not associate what he's talking about is the disassociation is not of the world or not with the people of the world and he clarifies that here in verse 10 I did not at all mean to disassociate with the immoral people of this world or at the covetous and swindlers, or at the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So Paul clarifies what he intended when he says, do not associate with immoral people. Paul isn't talking about disassociation with the sinful people of the world. If we were to do that, then we would have to withdraw ourselves from the world entirely. If we were to do that, then where would we work? And where would we shop? And whom would we witness to? And why would we send out missionaries? We are not to isolate ourselves as hermits and disassociate ourselves with all of the immoral people of the world. If we were to do that, we would have no place to go. If this was what Paul intended, then he would have contradicted the very prayer that Jesus prayed in His high priestly priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, and we could add in parentheses, who is in the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So in addition to immoral people, Paul adds several other sinful lifestyles that are common among the unbelieving community. And he adds to that covetous idolaters and swindlers. So if we as Christians were to completely disassociate ourselves from all of the sinful people of the world who have these sinful characteristics or traits within them, then we would be in total isolation. We would have no one to witness to. We would have no reason to send out missionaries. We would just live amongst ourselves and not let God do His work apart from us. And we would have no partnership with him in the gospel, which of course is inconsistent with the Great Commission and so much of what the Bible teaches us. So Paul further clarifies what he meant when he says that we are to disassociate with the Amor people of the world. Not of the world. We are not to disassociate with the people of the world, but we are to disassociate with the people of the church. I'm getting very tongue-tied saying that over and over and over. Verse 11 Paul says, but actually I wrote to you in that letter that we do not have a copy of not to associate with any quote so-called end quote brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler which is a slanderous person or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. So to be clear, All Christians are sinful. There are none that are perfect. But perfection is not the standard for disassociation. If that were the standard, I would not be here and you would not be here either. There would be emptiness in every church that existed if disassociation from any sinful people was what Paul was talking about. Paul identifies lifestyles that are inconsistent with a sincere profession of faith, which is prefaced by the term, quote, so-called. That term means anyone who takes the name of Christ, meaning anyone who calls themselves a Christian. So if we are to apply this to the church, the church is to disassociate itself from any professing Christian whose lifestyle is characterized by the examples that Paul identifies here in this letter. Now, this is not to be understood as an exhaustive list, but it is an example of a lifestyle that is dominated by the power of sin. He uses the term immoral, which always means sexual immorality, covetous, which could mean greedy or those who are given over to the sin of always wanting more. It is idolatry, those that have allowed other things to replace God as first in their life, a reviler or a slanderous person who bears false testimony against his neighbors, drunkards and swindlers. So as we think about these lifestyles, If we know people within the church who are professing Christians whose life is dominated by this kind of sinfulness, what is the church to do? Well, I can tell you what most churches do. Eh, it's not that it's not that big of a deal right now. If it gets to be a really really big deal, then we'll have to address it. For example, you know somebody that's a drunkard and who is not able to maintain a job and perhaps isn't taking care of their family the way that they should, and then they get in legal trouble, then the church might be motivated to say, you know, somebody probably ought to go talk to Brother uh, Tommy over there and see what's going on. Well, if we are to understand what a genuine commitment to the truth is, and we have a professing Christian in the church who is dominated by a lifestyle of sin, we have an obligation as a brother or a sister to this person to help them break free from the power of sin. So we begin the process of discipline. We go and we have the conversation. They don't listen. We bring two or three others and they do not listen. We bring bring them before the church and they do not listen. Then we expel them and we cut them off from the Christian community in the hopes that they will understand the seriousness of their sin and repent from it. And if they do any of this and these steps outlined in church discipline then we have won our brother back to the fellowship. Right? We celebrate, we rejoice with them and we continue to help them in their journey of being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, as I mentioned, it's doubtful that Paul is creating a complete list of examples of sinful lifestyles but he's obviously listing Lifestyles that are inconsistent with a profession of faith. So the instruction then is to not keep close company with professing Christians who live lives that are dominated by obvious sinful attitudes and actions because the potential is that these are going to influence in a very negative way the fellowship of believers that they are a part of. John MacArthur explains it like this. I quote, "...although true believers are recipients of a new nature the divine nature, the life of God in their inner person, a new holy self. The flesh is still present and offers the potential for all kinds of sinning. The believer who refuses to appropriate the resources of his new life and yields to the flesh will fall into habitual patterns of evil such as those mentioned here. The Greek terms used here to identify the sins are substantives indicating patterns of behavior. Can believers develop such patterns of sin? The answer is yes. In salvation, the penalty of sin is paid and the dominion of sin is broken so that subjection to it is not necessary, but voluntary. Believers who choose sin will develop sinful patterns unless they repent, end quote. So we are not to associate with professing believers who have willingly given given themselves over to these sinful practices, but what are we to do? We are to discipline them. We do that by confronting them, and if they refuse all portions of discipline, then we take the very drastic measure of expelling them from the church in hopes that they will repent of their sin and be restored back to fellowship. So Paul has already established that the Corinthian Christians are not spiritually like the unbelievers who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the question, the confrontation is this, why are you acting like them? If you are not a part of that community around us that is not going to be with God in heaven for all of eternity, then why are you living like them? It is inconsistent, it is inconceivable, and it cannot continue this way. So when a professing Christian lives and acts like an unbeliever, the church is to confront that person with his sin in hopes of being an instrument of repentance, bringing about restoration. So if the so-called Christian refuses, then what is the church to do? Well, you know, they just didn't listen. They're just going to do their own thing their own way. So we'll just let them continue to attend. We'll pretend like nothing is wrong and we will hope through the grace of God that they will come to their senses and everything will work out for the good in the end. No! No! That's not what Paul says. Paul says, expel the immoral brother who refuses to repent because it's going to be damaging to the fellowship of believers. Now, while this can be considered an extreme response by some, and perhaps even by many, no church is strong enough to allow obvious sinful lifestyles to peacefully coexist within the church and assume that it's not going to have a negative influence within the congregation. Are we that strong? Is any church that strong? I can virtually guarantee that there are churches in our world today that have said, you know what, we should have dealt with that a long, long time ago. Because... If we did, we may not be where we are today. I actually served in a church that had a pastor that lived a lifestyle that would be considered dominated by sin, was not consistent with the character or the teachings of Christ, and they continued to brush it aside and hope for the best and assume that God was going to work it out for their good in the end, And that church is about 20% of what it used to be because they refused to deal with the problem. Here's the thing we must remember. Discipline is difficult, it is painful, and it is often heartbreaking. But the consequence of not dealing with the problem is worse than dealing with the problem itself. It is not that we should not love the offender, but we should love Christ and His church and His word even more. Our love to the unrepentant Christian is not to be sentimental tolerance, but it is the love of correction. Now... Instead of disassociating with the sin-dominated people within the church, the church of Corinth was disassociating themselves from the sin-dominated people of the world. I said that backwards. Let me rephrase that. Instead of those disassociating yeah, with, the, with the sinful people of the church, the church of Corinth was disassociating themselves with the same sinful people of the world, which is not what Paul was instructing. Now these final two verses, very quickly... Provide the clear contrast of judgment that exists within our world today. Verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So you and I, the church, has no responsibility for judging those who are outside the believing community. We are to witness to outsiders, not judge them. We cannot chasten them. And there is no remedial step that we can apply to their lives that is going to remove the sin from them. Those who are outside of the church are going to be judged by whom? By God. We leave judgment of the outside non believing world to God. But the contrast is this we have a responsibility to judge those who are within the church. We must remove the wicked man from amongst ourselves in order to protect the church and to be an instrument of God to bring about repentance and to maintain a genuine, pure commitment to the character and the teachings of Christ. We do so with the love of Christ, with the love for His church, and a love for obedience to His Word. Now, I can guarantee you, there are many, many well-intentioned people out there who believe that letting this stuff go is the right thing to do because who am I to judge? And God will work it out in the end. And almost always, not dealing with the problem is far better than letting that problem continue to its sinful conclusion. Discipline is always difficult in the beginning, but it brings about righteousness and repentance. And so we do so not to be the sin police but to love Christ and His Word in the church so much that we're not willing to allow professing Christians who are dominated by a sinful lifestyle negatively influence the church that we are a part of. Very, very difficult, incredibly difficult to do, painful to do, but it must be done. And if it doesn't get done, what is the outcome? Let's pray.